We're going to wrap up chapter 1 today. And in this final section, uh, James emphasizes the danger of self-deception. Verse number 22, he talks about deceiving yourself. In verse number 26, he talks about uh, the one that deceives his own heart. The fact of the matter is many people are deceiving themselves on so many different levels. Some people are actually deceiving themselves into thinking that they're saved when they're not. As hard as it is to, to be a believer, I can only imagine how difficult it must be to pretend that you're a believer. But many people are in that self-deception of trying to convince themselves that they have a right relationship with God when in actuality they don't. Jesus understood this, and Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So some people are self-deceiving them and thinking that they have a right relationship with God and that they're an actual child of God. And then we have some believers who are self-deceiving and thinking that their walk with the Lord is proper and right. With their mouths, they might proclaim to walk with God, but through their lives and through their actions and their attitudes, they're really revealing that their loyalty isn't with the Lord, their, their loyalty lies with the world. Proper spiritual awareness results with having a proper relationship to God through His Word. In fact, His Word says in John chapter 17, verse number 17, to sanctify them in truth because your, tr- your Word is truth. So, so here's the thing. Ultimately, the key to uh, properly responding to trials and properly resisting temptation when we're faced with it, the key is found in how we respond or apply the Word of God to our lives. And in our text this morning, James is going to point out how we have three responsibilities that, that we have in relation to the Word of God. So those three responsibilities, real quick, and then I'll break each one of them down. The three responsibilities that we have to the Word of God is to receive it, then we're to obey it, and then ultimately we're to proclaim it. So let's start at number one, the receiving of God's Word. James chapter 1, verse number 19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Say that the word of God cannot work in our lives unless we receive it in the right way. Elsewhere, Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, verse number 24, Jesus says to pay attention to what you hear. And then he says in Luke chapter 8, verse number 18, he says to pay careful attention into how you hear. So how you hear is just as important as to what you hear. 
And so too many people are in the tragic condition in which Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verse number 13, he says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Which means that it is possible you might attend uh, Bible studies consistently, you might attend church services weekly, but never grow in Christ-like maturity. And if you're attending church regularly, participating in Bible studies you know, consistently, and you're not growing in your faith and understanding and your character in Christ, then who's to blame? I mean, is it the teacher and, and the preacher's responsibility? Is it their problem? Maybe. But perhaps to a greater extent, the person that's to blame is the one that's listening. It was the author of Hebrews when he was writing to warn about apostasy. He said, about this we have much to say. So he had a lot to say about warning against apostasy. He says, about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain and then he says, since you become dull to hearing. In other words, he has so much more to say and so much more to explain, but it was impossible because the people had grown dull to hearing. So the question becomes, then how can we avoid being dull of hearing? What, what can we do in order that we might properly receive the implanted word of God into our lives? And so, thankfully, James answers that question for us. First of all, we need to be quick to hear. We must be quick to hear. Back to verse number 19. James is right. He said, know this, my brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And so, in Matthew chapter 13, verse number 9, Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. See, just because you're you can hear me, doesn't mean you're listening. There's a distinct difference between the two. You might hear my voice, you might hear the words, but it doesn't mean that you're listening to my voice or listening to the words. Romans chapter 10, verse number 17, is where Paul writes, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So just as the servant is quick to hear his master's voice, or just as a as, as a, a new mother is quick to hear and respond to their infant child's cry, so too should believers be quick to hear from the Word of God so that we might receive it into our lives. So not only are we supposed to be quick to hear God's Word in our lives, we also need to be slow to speak. I mean, you've heard it said, we have two ears and, and one mouth, so maybe that gives an indication we should listen uh, twice as much as we speak, or, uh, you know, we should at least listen a lot more than we talk, and too many times when it comes to hearing God's Word being spoken into our lives, we have a tendency to resist it or even argue with it or argue against God's Word. It says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse number 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Man, I'd write that one down. Proverbs 19, I mean Proverbs 10, verse number 19. 
When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and then the third key is for us to be slow to anger. Slow to anger. Which means anger at what? We don't need to get angry at God, nor at God's Word, just because when we hear it, or when we read it and study it, we don't like what it has to say. And so we don't get angry at God or His Word. Proverbs 14, verse number 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. You want to see the, the inverse of all of these actions played out in Scripture, you need to look no further than the Apostle Peter. I mean, he himself was slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to anger. So much so that uh, on the night that Jesus was uh, betrayed, I mean, he, he literally almost killed an individual because he was slow to speak and, 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 I mean, and slow to hear quick to speak, and quick to become angry. I mean, he almost chopped off a dude's head because he wouldn't do the right thing or receive God's word in the right way. Now, before I go further, yeah, I understand that there's a proper way uh, to respond to sin, and there's a proper way uh, to have anger in life, but that anger is against sin. I know that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 26, it says to be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. And if we love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we're committed to following Him and becoming like a representation of Jesus Christ in this world, then we also know that we must hate sin. We must hate it. We must despise and loathe sin. Psalm chapter 97, verse number 10 says, O oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of His saints, he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. And then here in verse number 20, we see that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So in order for us to properly receive the implanted word of God into our lives, we have to have the right attitude. And the right attitude or the proper attitude that we're supposed to have is given to us in the text. We're supposed to receive God's word with meekness is what it says. It says in verse 21, put away all filthiness and the rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So we're to receive the word of God with meekness. And when we receive the word of God with meekness, that means we hear it, we accept it, we don't argue with it, we don't argue about it, so we hear it, we accept it without arguing about it, and then we allow it to change who we are and what we do. That's the way to honor the Word of God. That's the way we receive God's Word with meekness in our lives. We hear it, we don't argue, we accept it, and then we allow it to change who we are and what we do. And so James continued his thought here in verse number 22, at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Man, I love this section. 
It's telling us it's not enough just to hear the Word of God in our lives. We must respond to it in active obedience. The command is clear. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That verb that's used, deceiving, is found in the New Testament only two places. It's found here, and it's found in Colossians chapter 2, verse number 4. And that word, when it's translated, it means to cheat or to deceive yourself because of false reasoning or false thinking. And so the deception comes when we begin to think that we've done everything that is necessary simply by listening to God's Word. Well, that's not enough. It's not enough to hear it. We've got to take what we've heard and apply it to our lives and do it. And the blessing comes in the doing. The sad tragedy is the fact that too many believers mark their Bibles, but their Bibles never mark their lives. Is that you? Is it changing who you are and what you do for the honor and for the glory of God? If you think that you're spiritual and you're doing what's right simply by listening to the Word of God, then you're only deceiving yourself. Because listening is not enough. And to drive home the importance of this matter of obedience, James compares the Word of God to a mirror of all things. But what's awesome is that if you're familiar with Scripture at all, then you know that he's exactly right when he compares it to a mirror. Because it doesn't take long of looking into God's Word, then we begin to truly see who we are and what we need. We got to understand that there's different ways that you can look at a mirror. And James addresses both of those. Look at verse number 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and he goes away at once and forgets what he was like. We call this first one, the negative example, is that of the forgetful glancer. The one that takes the forgetful glance at God's word. We depend on mirrors in life to tell us what's wrong with us, right? I'm sure many of us have looked in the mirror at some point this morning in your preparation of coming out in public. At least you appear as though you have, right? And so we depend on that mirror to, to tell us what needs to be corrected, what needs to be fixed, what kind of uh, thing that we can do or, or adjust so that we look the right way. Well, let me ask you, what good is it or what would you think of an individual that would go to a mirror to find out what is wrong with themselves, see the problem, and then walk away from the mirror and then not make any corrections based upon what they saw in that mirror? I mean, if you're not going to make the correction, then there's no point in looking in the mirror. Looking in the mirror only works if it leads to action. If it doesn't lead to action, then it's useless. Hang with me here on this next one. Because some of you might shut down. Don't shut down. Hear me out. Hear me out. Many sincere believers are in the daily routine of reading their Bibles. And they read their Bibles every single day. But for many, my fear is that it has become simply a religious exercise. And you're reading the Word of God, and you're not allowing it to change or transform who you are. 
and, and for many people, their conscience would bother them if they didn't have their daily reading, if they didn't spend their five or ten minutes a day reading their Bible. Their conscience would bother them. When in actuality, I think perhaps their conscience should be bothering them because they're reading the Bible in such a careless manner. And so the Bible isn't to be read like it's a, a newspaper story. It's not, it's not to be read like it's a, it's a novel. We, we read the Bible so we can discover truths about God. We can understand who we are in relation to God. And we can make the appropriate corrections in our lives based upon what God's Word has to say to us. And a casual reading of the Bible is never going to reveal our deepest needs. The Word of God, like a mirror, it does its work when we look into it and we allow it to tell us the truth about ourselves. And then once we look in it and we discover the truths about ourselves, then what happens next is completely on us. It's completely on us. Are we going to correct the problem? Are you going to ignore them? Are you going to act on the Word of God or are you going to continue to act and do your own thing in your own way? What does the Word of God reveal to you about you? Have you thought about that? Have you looked at it recently and says, God, what is your Word saying to me or about me? And if you'll do that, you'll discover maybe His Word is telling you that your prayer life is not what it ought to be. I mean, is this word telling you that the bitterness and the anger and the resentment that you're holding towards another person isn't cute, isn't funny, isn't excusable? It's sin? It's sin that needs to be addressed and corrected? Is he showing you how your unforgiveness towards another person is in direct rebellion against God? I mean, what are you seeing about yourselves as you're reading through his word? And when you discover something that needs to be corrected, something that needs to be changed, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Are you going to take action or are you going to walk away from it and refuse to make any changes in your life? Far too often, I think, I read this interesting story this week and I think we're too much like this uh, witch doctor who had an experience one time with a local missionary and this witch doctor was in the hut of a missionary and the missionary they had a mirror and they were passing it around and the witch doctor for the very first time she took that mirror turned and and, and saw the the image in that mirror and then she jumped back in frightful terror and she gave the mirror back and as soon as she gave the mirror back, she began to bargain with the missionaries so that she could take ownership of that mirror. And the missionaries were like, no, this is, no. They kept on saying, no, no, no. But ultimately, they realized that she wasn't going to give up until she had possession of that mirror. And so they finally agreed to terms to, to make a change or a trade so that she could have the mirror. And once the transaction was complete, she took the mirror without looking at it, threw it on the ground, and smashed it to pieces. And the missionaries asked her, why, why did you do that? What was the purpose? And then she replied, at least it won't be making ugly faces at me anymore. You ready? Make no mistake. The Bible reveals our ugliness. 
it reveals our imperfections. And our ugliness and our imperfections aren't going to go away if we simply try to ignore God's work. The ugliness and the imperfections in our lives will only go away through proper confession and repentance. And so, thankfully, James gives us another way to look at the mirror in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So you have the forgetful glancer, and then you have a thoughtful gazer, one that gazes and looks deeply into something. This is the person who looks into the Word of God, and they persevere. And that word look, it comes from a Greek word that means so much more than just a casual glance at something. It carries with it a sense of looking carefully, closely, or seriously about a matter. It carries with it the imagery of stooping down and getting down on your hands or knees so that you can get closer to the object and really begin to investigate and study and truly know what that object is. And so if we are to use God's mirror profitably, then a quick and casual glance at God's word, even every single day of our lives, is not going to work. We must be willing to examine our hearts and our lives in light of the word of God. And in order to do that, in order to profit from God's word correctly, then that requires time on our part. It requires serious attention. And it requires major devotion. And far too many of us aren't willing to sacrifice the time, give the attention, or allocate that type of devotion in our lives. I love how James refers to God's word as the perfect law of liberty. It's perfect because it was given to us by God himself. And God, who is perfect, cannot give to us anything that is not perfect. So it is perfect. It is God's law because it's been given to us by God and it's given to us by God for the express purpose of guiding and regulating our lives. So it is the perfect law. And not only that, it's the law of liberty because His Word gives freedom to those who will subject themselves to it. How beautiful is God's perfect law of liberty and how blessed we are to have a mirror that will show us the truth about ourselves. If we would only realize to a greater degree of what we possess in the Word of God, then we would find ourselves looking more intently into His Word, into the law that gives liberty. Perhaps, maybe, perhaps one of the reasons why we glance into the Word instead of gazing into it is because like the witch doctor, we're afraid of what we might see. That we don't want to have to be confronted with the ugliness or the imperfections that are in our lives. Look at verse 25. I want you to understand that the blessing in our lives comes from the doing of God's word, not the reading. In verse 25, it says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And this is an emphasis throughout the whole book of James. The emphasis is on the practice of God's word in our lives. So our first responsibility is to receive the word of God, 
then we're to practice God's Word because if we only hear God's Word and we don't practice it, then we're simply deceiving ourselves and we're not fooling God at all. So we're to hear God's Word, we're to practice the Word of God, and that leads to our third responsibility, and that is to proclaim it. Look at verse number 26. It says, If anyone thinks his, he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now that phrase, the world, what that simply means is that uh, those that are uh, outside of God. It's, uh, it's the unholy alliance with the adversaries, not the proper alliance with God. And then that word religion there is talking about our outward practice, the things that we do. It's used in only three places in all of the New Testament, this particular term. It's used here in James chapter 1. You'll find it in Acts chapter 26 and again in Colossians chapter 2. So pure religion has nothing to do with ceremonies, rites, rituals. It has nothing to do with the type of music that's played or the songs that are sung. Pure religion means practicing the Word of God and proclaiming it to other people. That is pure religion. And thankfully, James identifies the way that we're to proclaim God's word. And so we proclaim God's word into three parts, or, or three ways. We proclaim it through our speech, through our service, and then by our separation. We'll start with speech, verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So ultimately, may you know that the tongue reveals what's in the heart. What comes out of the mouth is an overflow of what exists in a person's heart. Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? Then he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Often says, you heard the phrase, uh, their words betrayed them or something like that. Your words don't betray you. Your, your, your words reveal what's truly in your heart. It's out of the abundance of the heart that your mouth speaks. Now, now, to be clear, uh, both James and, and Jesus, in fact, they're not talking about the believer who occasionally messes up with their speaking. No, they're talking about someone that's consistently demonstrating that through their words. And, and so are, do your words consistently reveal your loyalty and allegiance to God? Or do your words reveal that there is a darkness that's not been dealt with in your heart? James is going to further develop this thought by the time we get to chapter 3. It's interesting, I was reading about a little bit about John Wesley this past week. And I was reading this one story about how uh, John Wesley was once uh, confronted by a very bitter and angry woman one day. And the woman came up to him to complain to him and said, quite frankly, 
I don't like your bow tie. The strings are too long. What do you do with that? To which John Wesley went and found and secured himself a pair of scissors. And he goes back to the woman and he said, Madam, would you please go ahead and, since my bow tie is an offense to you, would you go ahead and trim it to your liking? And she does. She trims up his bow ties and he gets the scissors back. And he said, well, thank you, madam. By the way, your tongue is an offense to me. Would you please stick it out so I can trim it off? That's good. Think about this. I think that we could all do a world of good if we would take the scissors of repentance and do a little bit of trimming in our own lives. Not going around trying to trim other people's lives. I mean, how much good can you imagine that we would accomplish if we would do just that? How many of our children would have a different attitude towards the things of God if they saw that God meant more to us than just going to church on Sunday morning. If they saw in us that our faith brought us alive and brought us so much joy and peace no matter what we face, rather than making us angry and bitter individuals that, I mean, if they get a pure, consistent view of what it means to be a child of God rather than a hypocritical view that just drags me to church whenever it's convenient for the parent. How many of our friends would be much more convinced of the reality of our faith if our words were praising God rather than filled with profanity towards other people. And we're to share the Word of God through our speech, and we're to share it through our service. goes on to say, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So ultimately, may you know that words are not a substitute for acts of love. In fact, James is going to expand on this by the time we get to the midsection of chapter 2. So the example of service that James gives to us is that to visit the orphans and widows in their times of trouble. These are two groups of people who were the most helpless and vulnerable people of that time and of that age. And so James was calling for his readers to show great compassion and to take action to those that need it the most. And again, I want you to be careful that you don't overlook a very critical point of clarification here. This is so significant because James was writing to believers that were experiencing troubles of their own. And in their own trouble, James is trying trying to tell them, hey, look, don't forget to overlook the other people in their time of distress. It's not just about you. Like there are other people all around you. They are hurting. They are struggling. May you see who they are and then respond accordingly. And one of the best things that you can do in your time of trouble is to turn around and help somebody else in their trouble. James is trying to say the way that we proclaim God's word to a lost and dying world is through the words that we say, yes, but it's also through the deeds that we do. 
One of the saddest realities of our day is that we have so many believers who are so absorbed with their podcast, with their playlist, from their Bible study group to their conference, that they spend all their time going from one thing to the, ne to the next, and they never take the time to write a card, to make a meal, to mow the yard of someone who is struggling in life whether it be a widow, whether it be an orphan, or whether it just be a person in desperate, dire need. James is saying to us, like, wake up, look around, see the needs of other people, and then respond accordingly. It is so stinking easy to be a good Pharisee when what the world needs is good Samaritans. May we stop being good Pharisees and may we embrace the call to be a good Samaritan for the glory of God. So, so just to be clear, James isn't the only one that makes this emphasis. Listen to what the Apostle John had to say in 1 John chapter 3. He says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So we, we share the word, we proclaim it through our speech, we proclaim it through our acts of service, and then ultimately, we also proclaim it by our separation. Verse 27, again, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and then it says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Again, the world means the society without God. Here are some of the things that we know about the world. According to John chapter 14, verse number 30, we know that Satan is the prince of this world. Luke chapter 16, verse number 8, tells us that the lost are children of the world. And then those that put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as children of God, John chapter 17, verses 11 through 16, tells us that we're in the world physically, but we're not to be of the world spiritually. In fact, then it goes on in John chapter 17, verse number 18, to remind us that we are sent into the world to win other people to Christ. And it is only as we maintain our separation from the world that we can properly and effectively serve others for the glory of God. In fact, Charles Spurgeon once said this, we cannot be fishers of men if we remain among men in the same element with them. Fish will not be fishers. The sinner will not convert the sinner the ungodly man will not convert the God, ungodly man. And what is more to the point, the worldly Christian will not convert the world. We live in a polluting world. Not just physical pollution, but spiritual pollution. And this world can pollute our thinking. It can pollute our talking. It can pollute are doing but but think about this there was a time when the church found it absolutely essential 
to be different and distinct from the world. In fact, there was a time when the church believed that showing this difference would be a way that they could help to attract unbelievers to, to hearing and receiving the gospel. But now, we live in this alternate crazy reality where the church is saying the complete opposite. Now we have the model in a lot of churches is to try to attract the world by being like the world or familiar with the world. You know how messed up that is? I mean, that approach fails to realize that if Christianity is not distinctly different and unique from what the world has to offer, then in reality, there's no need for it. We can't hope to influence the world for Christ if we allow the world to influence our speaking, our thinking, our doing. It won't work like that. So we, we, we influence and we proclaim God's Word through our words and through our actions and by our separation. And James is going to masterfully develop this by the time we get to chapter 4. But, but real quick, in chapter 4 he says, you adulterous people. Now there you go. That's a way to get somebody's attention. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let me say this and I'm done. I think that one of the most reliable evidences of authentic salvation is seen in us having a hunger for the Word of God. Just as a newborn baby does not need to be taught how to hunger after its mother's milk, so too the newborn child of God does not need to be taught how to hunger for the Word of God. I mean, this is our spiritual food and drink. And so as we hunger for it, as a true believer hears the Word of God, then there should be an affection for the truth. There should be a desire to receive that truth. And as we hear it and have an affection for it, we receive it, and then we apply it to our lives. Let me give you just a warning. If you don't have an affection for the Word of God, if you don't have a desire to be corrected by the Word of God, you better check your relationship with God. Better check it. And so we can give thanks this morning that in chapter 1, James focuses on how to properly receive God's Word into our lives. And he also tells us, not just how to receive it, but how to respond to it. My prayer this morning is that God would grant in us or increase in us a hunger for his word, that we might hear it, accept it, quit arguing with it, and rightly apply it to our lives. And if we will, it is the perfect law that brings freedom in our lives. And what good news is that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for today and for this church. And as we move through a time of invitation, Father, I pray that you would guide and encourage us in making decisions that would honor and please you. There are a lot of decisions that could be made in this moment, Father. Father, I pray that we would long to receive your word into our lives. And when we see the ugliness or the imperfections of our lives, that we won't get mad, 
We won't get angry. We won't just throw the Bible down and try to ignore it, but that we will receive it and we will correct what it is that needs to be corrected in our lives. So God, during this time, I pray that there might be confession of sin, repentance from sin, commitments, renewals to be made, whatever needs to happen, Father, make it happen. In your name and for your glory. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.